Gun violence throughout the state in communities like East St. Louis and Rockford and Peoria, Aurora. You know, the fact is no community is immune. And, you know, I hate to say it, it's coming soon, you know, <laughs> to you. Hello, and welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Ben Zielinski, and we'll be your host this week. In this week's episode, we will speak with Kathleen Sansis, President and CEO of the Gun Violence Prevention PAC, also known as GPAC. GPAC is an Illinois political action committee that supports candidates who back policies to reduce gun violence. The organization also pushes legislation Springfield they believe will make Illinois communities safer. This week, we will talk to Kathleen about what her organization is pushing for in response to the mass shooting at Highland Park's 4th of July parade that killed seven and injured over 40 others. The shooter, 21-year-old Bobby Cremo of Highwood, has been charged with seven counts of first-degree murder. Cremo legally purchased the rifle used in the shooting along with four other weapons. He legally obtained an Illinois firearm owner identification card as well, despite making previous threats to kill his family and Highland Park police, documenting the threats and sharing them with Illinois State Police. Since the shooting, lawmakers have called for new action, including banning assault weapons, reducing magazine sizes, and tightening Illinois' red flag laws and FOID card rules. Now here's my interview with Kathleen. Kathleen Sansis, president of and CEO of the Gun Violence Prevention Pack. Thank you so much for joining me on the Cloudcast this week. Thanks for having me. It's my first time. I'm excited. Yeah, so unfortunately, once again, we're having this episode because there's been another mass shooting, another tragedy. Um, this one pretty close to home for us here in Illinois. Um, and, you know, it's this time I think it's a little bit different for many people as well compared to the gun violence um, that we're accustomed to, I think, in, in Chicago. And this happened in a wealthy suburb with very little crime. Um, unfortunately, mass shootings are not really an uncommon thing, but the shocking nature of this one at a holiday parade and that it happened here in Illinois in front of us has seemed to make it much more vivid and real for people. What's been your initial takeaways from the Highland Park shooting? Uh, well, right at the top, I want to just acknowledge, um, you know, the Highland Park community and um, their survivors and victims, obviously, this week. And, um, you know, we're with them and doing whatever we can so um, they can find some peace and comfort in the near future. Uh I think that you're right, I, that there's so much more focus on this because it's significant it happened on this holiday when we're out celebrating freedom, right? And the fact is we don't have freedom here because there's a risk of being shot and killed in all our public spaces. And um, the it seems like these these mass uh, shootings that happen in, you know, affluent communities always make the news. And um, we have to recognize that we have mass shootings every week, you know, on the south and west sides of the city. Um, people, I hear people, they were surprised that this happened in Highland Park. You know, however, we have... Um, gun violence throughout the state in communities like East St. Louis and Rockford and Peoria, Aurora. You know, the fact is no community is immune. And, 
you know, I hate to say it's coming soon, you know, (laughs) to you. And, um, you know, we have to talk about what happened in Highland Park, but we also have to today talk about what's happening in those communities as well. Right. It always seems like, you know, here in Chicago, we see it on the news because it's our local news that, you know, there was a mass shooting, often gang related. Um, That stuff never makes the national news. And usually after maybe even a morning news cycle, it's out of the news by the time the five o'clock news comes around. Um, I guess in your view, what makes it so different that you know, that kind of violence doesn't get the same attention as as these kinds of, of mass shootings. Obviously, this one had so many more people involved. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still, it's still gun violence. And, you know, partially it appears to be the same problem that, you know, of, of whatever is causing these shootings. You know, I... It's tragic that the shootings that happen every day here, especially in Chicago, don't get this coverage. And um, I don't know why the media doesn't report on on it. They should. And, you know, is it because the victims are black and brown? And so, you know, I, I don't know why. I think that's that's something you need to ask, you know, people who are reporting on these tragedies. So to get into a little bit of background, tell us a little bit about what your organization does as far as your, your work to prevent gun violence. Sure. We, um, we started in 2013 with the Gun Violence Prevention Political Action Committee. It was founded by survivors of gun violence who wanted to counter the gun lobby in Springfield or state PAC. That's our focus. Um, you know, the NRA has been such a powerful lobby in our nation and in our state for years. You know, there was no full-time lobbyist down in Springfield, you know, advocating as strongly the, the gun lobby did. They had, you know, more than one. And so we knew if we didn't get to 30 in the Senate, 60 in the House, and have a good governor, we weren't going to get any reforms passed. So that was our strategy. Elections have consequences, right? And, you know, that's how we started out was to build a majority in each chamber. And as we've been working along every election, you know, we do get more gun safety champions in Illinois. And um, when, when we have an opportunity we have um, the Gun Violence Prevention Action Committee, which is a partner organization that does advocacy. So there we work to advocate for and pass gun reform. And since you know we um, have found it, you know founded the organizations, we've had three priorities passed. The first one was um, gun dealer certification. This law holds gun dealers accountable. Um, so that if it looks like they're, you know, um, allowing a lot of prohibited straw purchasing to take place, the state can now um, shut them down. The other one was the um, block illegal ownership bill. This was a package that the governor signed last August um, 
it was a priority initiative for us. And it was recognized as one of the largest gun reform packages in the nation. And the important thing, you know, this package really was prompted by the mass shooting back in Aurora. Um, and that required a background check now for every single purchase um, in Illinois. It also gave law enforcement the resources it needs to get out and retrieved revoked void cards and guns. Um, and it also directs $9 million to communities where this violence happens because we know we have to uplift and heal these communities and give them an opportunity. Um, and then just this past session, we were able to make ghost guns illegal. So as long as we're getting that majority, we're picking to pass gun reform. Yeah, let's get into some of the different policy solutions that are often discussed when it comes to gun violence. Um, this one's not a new suggestion, but a lot of people in the last few days have been increasing their calls for an assault weapons ban. Would this solve anything? It'll solve part, it will solve part of the problem, right? I mean, we, we see that these weapons of war are, are have been used in most recent mass shootings, and um, I can bring up, you know, Buffalo, Uvalde, and now here in Highland Park, but there's many, many more if you, if you do the research. Um, I, I don't understand why citizens would need this type of firepower. Um, this, this shooter used a, um, a weapon Monday that is called an MMP-15. It's made by Smith, Smith & Weapon, that MS. He is for military and police, <laughs> and he is neither. So, yes, I, I do think, you know, limiting um, assault weapons, semi-automatic rifles would, would you know, um, limit, would, you know, reduce these shootings. And we know that when we did have this ban federally, um, you know, in 1994, that sunset, I think, in 2004, um, there was a decrease in mass shootings. The other thing though we have to look at is limiting the high capacity ammunition magazines. Um, you know, again, the shooter had, you know, went through 30, he reloaded, right? And, you know, 80, 80 bullets in a very short time. So um, if you have to stop and reload, it gives people a chance to save themselves. And also, I know that the Chicago police are recovering crime guns that have the capacity to be semi-automatic handguns, rifles, and um, I think limiting the ammunition size, uh, the magazine size, excuse me, would, you know, um, be something that would contribute to reducing the amount of death going on in the city as well as potential mass shooters that we see. When it comes to limiting ownership of assault weapons, how would we do that without making criminals of people who currently own those those weapons? I mean, my recommendation is that a legacy clause goes into the ban that allows, uh, you know, uh, people who currently have these weapons to register them with law enforcement. 
So as long as we know who has them and we have the make, model, and serial number of the gun, you know, if, if something happens later, we're able to trace that gun to the owner. And then, you know, uh, we'll at least know how, how many are out there and prohibit them moving forward to, again, weapons of war to the citizenship. Right. That, that seems to make sense. Now, Highland Park already had an assault weapons ban in place. The, the shooter, he was a resident of, of Highwood, a neighboring Lake County community. Um, but there will be those that say that this shows that banning guns won't stop bad people. What's your response to people who say that? It's not going to stop all bad people. No matter what we do, we're, as long as there are guns you know, in, in society, this is going to happen. So we have to do what we can to make sure we limit it. And, you know, as far as the Highland Park ban, you know, um, the, I applaud them for passing it. Um, it's limited because it's a patchwork because you can go into the next community and, and have one and it's easy just to walk over the border. And, um, you know, you have to be caught with the assault weapon and then, you know, um, be held accountable. And it'll be interesting to see as we move down if if they, you know, do charge him with that. Yeah, and one of the other things that often gets a lot of attention here in Illinois when it comes to our strict gun laws is that the states around us just they don't they don't have those strict laws. Indiana has very relaxed laws. Um, you know, how much can we really do individually as a state versus making this really a federal problem? Um when you have other states around us where guns are trafficked in from Indiana into the South side of Chicago. It, it's a big problem and it took Congress 30 years to act and I applaud them for acting, but we all know that that's just a first step and it clearly did not go far enough. You know, it, those guns are going to come over our borders and um, it's a tragedy. So, what can we do? What can we control? All we can control is what happens in our state. So I think that, you know, Illinois is a model on this and that we keep moving forward to do what we can um, to reduce gun violence the best we can within our borders. And, you know, um, at the federal level, I think that the federal movement just has to stay on top. And again, we need partners that we have like Giffords in every town <clears throat> make those investments to elect gun safety candidates to Congress and Senate. Now, Illinois' Floyd card process is getting a lot of attention from this. Uh, for listeners who may not be as familiar, the shooter was able to legally obtain the card despite previously making suicidal threats and threatening to kill his family. Highland Park Police did report these incidents to the Illinois State Police, but the state police said that the background checks on the shooter didn't give them enough reason to deny him a, a FOID card and that these were not disqualifying factors um, because when these ha threats happened, he did not have guns or a FOID card in his possession. Now, does this expose any loopholes in the FOID card system in your view? You know, we're still waiting for more information about this and 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 the process, right? I, I do think that we have a, a an excellent 
FOID card system. Uh, is it perfect? No, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but it's pretty good. Uh, are there some technical changes that could made to improve these processes? We're looking at that now. And, you know, you know, over time, you know, as this investigation is finished, I think we'll be able to find ways to tighten up those processes. But you know what would address this particular incident directly is if we just raise the age to 21 for access to any type of semi-automatic rifle. I think it's evident, you know, that um, that would, we've just seen so many shootings recently of in this age range. So maybe it's time to acknowledge that and raise the age. Yeah, many people have suggested various reforms to the FOID card as well, including uh, mandatory fingerprinting, stronger mm -hmm. background checks, anything that you've just been pushing for over the years here that you think would make the FOID card process stronger? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely support mandatory fingerprinting, and that was part of our last reform package. We couldn't get the votes to get that over the finish line at that time. However, I'm proud to say we introduced fingerprinting into the FOID application system. And um, so now that people who apply for a FOID card voluntarily can submit a fingerprint and it allows them free renewals. When people renew their FOID uh, card, they can also voluntarily submit their fingerprint. That allows them to get free renewals. And the measure also allowed the department to access fingerprints in Illinois databases of current FOID card holders. So uh, there are actually more fingerprints connected to FOID cards currently, uh, I think, than is publicly acknowledged. And now that the door is open, I think we should consider taking the next step and moving to a mandatory fingerprint. There's also been a lot of conversations in the wake of this shooting about if Illinois' red flag law works. Um, again, for our listeners here, the red flag laws are designed for family members to report mental health issues or incidents where they believe the gun owner may be a threat to themselves or others, and their guns can be temporarily removed from the situation. Uh, at the time, the Highland Park shooter didn't have guns and when he, when he threatened to kill his family, so there was no guns for the police to take away. Were any loopholes in the red flag laws exposed here? Okay, so just for clarification, oops, I lost me. Um, our, the law here in Illinois is called the Firearm Restraining Order, or we call it a FRO. Um, and in 2021, there were changes uh, made and signed into law by the governor that strengthened what was the initially enacted. So I think it's um, a, good, a good measure. What, what is lacking here in Illinois is that not enough people know to use it, right? And so it's on us to make sure that statewide we can get that public education 
out. Um, and they're, you know, in this recent bill that was passed, actually statewide education, um, curriculum formation, training of the public and um, law enforcement in, in 2023 is fully funded. So, you know, again, I think that we've been on top of, uh, of this law. It's a good law. Um, and we know we need to have uh, more public education about it. And it's on the way. Yeah, in the last few days, I've seen various reports where it seems like the our laws really get used on on red flags and imposing these restraining orders. How much do you really think people know about these things, even though we've had a lot of national conversations about, you know, implementing red flag laws and other states have them too? And, you know, what do we need to do to actually further educate people uh, on these laws and that we have them? Well, I have to tell you, you know, one of the organizations I work with, we did call every circuit uh, uh, court clerk in all counties um, to inform them about this. And then we also worked with the attorney general's office to train law enforcement. We um, and um, we did our organization did over 200 trainings to groups in the public um, and then COVID hit. And then everything was shut down. So um, we, you know, after a while, we were able to pivot to online trainings. And, you know, I think there are priorities that every one of these departments had ahead of this, right? Um, so now that, you know, uh, I would say that we're starting to get back open, we can, you know, we can get back on a robust training schedule. Now, after almost every one of these mass shootings, there's always anger, there's always calls to action, yet many times it seems like there's very little action that actually gets taken, and the action that gets taken isn't enough to actually prevent more more shootings. We already have a daily gun violence problem here in Illinois, here in Chicago, as we've talked about, um, where there's mass shootings that get almost no attention at the national level. Um, how do we make sure that this shooting isn't just forgotten about like so many other shootings, um, whether they be you know in white neighborhoods like this or you know black neighborhoods, gang shootings on the south side of Chicago, and that something substantial actually results from this? I mean, it's just heartbreaking to say that we've become numb to this because it happens all, you know, all the time. And, you know, I'm in this business. And one thing I say I can always count on is there's going to be another shooting. So, you know, and days go by and people forget. So it's incumbent upon our legislators to act with urgency to pass some meaningful legislation now. You know, I know that there may be a special session. It It is, um, you know, dedicated to choice, but come on, these, <laughs> our legislature can do more than one thing at a time. They can do two things, you know, and, and I, I'm urging them to deal, you know, to pass reform on both of these measures. And what my job is, is to make sure that we keep the public engaged and activated to ask for these reforms. 
How much is mental health a part of this discussion? It is part of the discussion, but it is not appropriate to use it as an excuse. You know, this country doesn't have more mental health issues than any other country, but this is the only country where we have this gun violence problem. So I just, you know, want to set the table with that. Um, that being said, we know in previous administrations, mental health services were cut. And while they were cut, we are now seeing the results of that, that people didn't have services available to them. So, um, you know, I think that the administration has increased mental health funding, um, you know, for programs. Again, COVID has been a barrier for people to get out and get these services. They're online, um, but we have to have sustained services in communities for people to use. Uh, we also have to encourage um, the professionals who should report mental health records that are accessible for, uh, you know, uh, FOID card background checks to report into the database. There's poor compliance, uh, you know, in that. And I think that we should look at um, incentives or education to make sure that that database, you know, um, is consistently fed into so that we have this information. That, you know, anything that, to clarify, that's a prohibitor for legal gun ownership. Right. One of the a lawmaker told me earlier this week that, you know, he, he thinks it has to be both ways, essentially, that, you know, we have a gun problem, we have a mental health problem, and some of that legislation needs to work together. It's, it seems like it's often kind of complicated to specifically be able to prevent somebody with a mental health problem from, from being able to obtain a weapon if they can't. How would this kind of legislation work together? How do you account for, I guess, a mental health issue when you're crafting gun legislation and trying to make sure that you know the right kind of people are the only ones who are able to buy a firearm? You know, our, our FOID law is written so that it already does prohibit, you know, folks with mental health issues or have, you know, um, been um, in uh, in-house programs from obtaining guns. It's already there, right? So um, I think that the law is written well. Uh, Again, this is about, you know, people seeking, seeking help. And um, I can't stress enough that <laughs> we can't use as we can't use mental health as an excuse for these shootings. Um, and so, you know, again, we have to fund those programs. That's what I would say. And, and um, that can be done. But I think it's clear that all these things we've talked about, the problem, it's the guns, <laughs> right? So a lot of other things contribute to this, but in the end, we have to deal with the fact that without the guns, these tragedies wouldn't happen. So 
let's talk about gun reform policy first and foremost. First and foremost. Yeah, my last question to you on that is, you know, there's a large population of the state that are gun owners, and there's another large portion of them that are very opposed to any gun restrictions. There's plenty of people who think that the Floyd card should be removed, that we shouldn't have that. What's your pitch after tragedies like these to to gun owners who are worried that further restrictions are violating their Second Amendment rights? Um, I think that there are a large number of legal gun owners who are with us. So I think that the gun owners who revert back to the Second Amendment issue of freedom, which, you know, I have to, I find that offensive because we should have the freedom to go out in public without fear of being shot. And I also think kids should have the freedom to grow up. Um, I just think they're loud, but I, I, I believe they're in the minority. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the Cloudcast. This was an extremely informative conversation. I'm glad we were able to have this because I think it's very important that we talk about these things after after this happened so close to home for a lot of people. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us this week. Thanks. Can, can I give a pitch for my uh, organization for people to head over to our website? www.gpacillinois.com. We have a petition. Um, if you're interested, that if you want to see the legislature take um, action in the near future to solve this problem, please sign the letter. And thanks for having me on. Whether or not Illinois lawmakers will meet for a special session on gun violence is not clear. Lawmakers were supposed to meet this month for a session to respond to the end of Roe v. Wade, but legislative leaders have said it will now happen in the coming months. Whether that session includes gun legislation will likely be determined later. Currently, lawmakers are next scheduled to meet in Springfield for the fall session in November. Regardless, Illinois' gun legislation will likely remain a hot political issue throughout the election year. This episode of the Cloutcast was produced by me, Ben Zelensky, and edited by Alex Nitkin. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks.